for men standing now as we read God's word together. These words from the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Will you read these words with me? Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. We've been traveling for several weeks and and learning uh, together what it is, what does love look like personified in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, We believe that Jesus was the one who was fully God and fully human. Uh, He he was not half and half. He was not a little bit here and a little bit there. He was 100% God and 100% human. We believe that's who he was. And, And because of that, he was love personified. So whatever he did is what love does. And so we've been traveling these several weeks learning about the person of Jesus Christ and what that looks like. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. It might help guide you through uh, this sermon as we learn how to help. And I don't know if you're like me, but you know, I'm oftentimes really eager to help, but many times that help kind of falls flat. Um, I, uh, as many of you know, I have a newborn now, uh, Elijah, and, and, and I'm learning again what it is to be sleep-deprived right? And, and I, I don't know, it seems like guys are worse at this than women. I, I'm really, uh, you know, my helpful scale is really low when I'm sleep deprived, right? Uh, you know, the first night we had um, Elijah, our, our newborn at the house, and uh, we had just gotten home and, you know, all the craziness of that, you know, just what it is. And um, we had finally gotten him down for bed. In the middle of the night, he woke up. Right, and, and, and Melissa was trying to wake me up, you know, to, to get Elijah, and, 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 I, and I was doing it pretty well, you know, and she was saying, Andy, you know, you need to get up and get, and get Elijah, and, and I started to do it, and I started to do it, and, and, and she kept saying, Andy, 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 and I finally said, what? And, and I realized I had been asleep the entire time, and, and I looked up, and I was trying to hold the dog in my hands. <laughs> you know, not, not necessarily helpful, as you might define it, Right? we really want to be helpful. You know, we want to do stuff for other people. Sometimes, you know, we just, we really want to help, but sometimes, you know, we just don't. We just don't. You know, again, we, we brought Elijah home, uh, you know, the first time to the house, and um, there's big sister Anna, got to meet him, and our daughter Anna is um, almost three. She'll be three in April, and uh, the first thing that Anna wanted whenever we got home was to help change his diaper, right? Again, help is, is a loose use of the term. And, and so, you know, we get Elijah in, and he starts crying, we got to change his diaper, and now the two-year-old wants to help. And, and what we realize is it's really stressful, uh, you know, trying to change a, a screaming baby with a two-year-old trying to help. You know, you can, you can see there, just, you know, it, it's great that she wants to help. I'm really excited and really happy about that, but, you know, it, it's just really hard sometimes. And I think we get caught in this cycle of just wanting to help, wanting to do something, but we don't. But we don't. You know, I think many times we want to help, but we don't out of fear. Out of fear. Have you ever experienced this? You know, 
maybe you want to help someone else. Maybe you want to help a coworker, you know, or help a friend. And, and you know they're going through something. You know there's something in their lives that you could, you could really lend word to. You could really be a helpful presence to them. But, but you don't. Maybe because you're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Or, you know, what if I get too involved and then I've got to be there all the time, you know? Or, 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 you know, what if I just do something that really upsets them? And, and I think we want to help, but we don't out of fear. Or, or maybe it's our relationships or even our marriage. You know, and, and we know there's something going on. There's something not quite right, and, and we want to do something to help, and we don't. Maybe because we're afraid of rejection, even from our spouse. You know, we want to help, but we don't, because I think many times we're afraid. Or, you know, we see those people on the side of the road when we're driving down the street, and we see them, and they're clearly in need of help. Clearly, you know, nobody would just come and do this if they were just feeling good and something's going on in this person's life. They clearly need help. And we many times are moved to inaction basically because we're afraid that whatever we do, they're going to manipulate, right? I don't want to give them money because, you know, what if they go spend it on, on drugs or on alcohol? And, you know, I really don't want to get involved in this person's life because, you know, what if something happens and then I'm liable or, you know, we just don't help because we're afraid. Or many of us can see the broken state of our political system. You know, anybody looking on the outside, looking in, can tell that something is not right. Something needs to be fixed. And, and, you know, we want to help, but maybe we're afraid of the people on the other side. Or maybe we're afraid of what might happen if we actually get involved. You know, we want to help, but we don't because we're afraid. But what we see in this passage that we just read is that... True help, true service doesn't come out of a place of fear. It comes out of this deep sense of love. Of love. We read this passage again in the Gospel of John, chapter, one, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. And the writer begins it this way, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. And so John sets the stage for this entire story to take place, and he, he, he not only gives a when, but a where as well. He says, when, it's six days before Passover. Now, Passover is very important to the Gospel of John. Uh, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is the fourth, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics because they're the same, they're similar. And, and, and John is a little different. You see, the first three Gospels only have one Passover, only have one Passover meal, but the Gospel of John includes three of them, three Passover meals. Uh, the first one in the Gospel of John, Jesus drives the money changers away from the temple. Maybe you've heard this story that Jesus comes to the temple and he sees many people peddling whatever it is, whether it's, it's doves or lambs or whatever, and they're selling all of these things. The money changers are exchanging money right there in the temple, in the, in the place of worship, the house of God. And Jesus becomes enraged by this, and he chases all of these people out of the temple, and he turns over all of their tables, and money scatters everywhere. This is the first Passover in the Gospel of John. The second one, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Maybe you've heard that one as well, when the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, these people have been following us for some time now. They're hungry. You know, we ought to send them away to give them some food. And Jesus says, no, don't send them away. You feed them. Right? And, and they don't know what to do, and, and, and Jesus asks them what they have, and they find a boy with five loaves and two fish. Jesus blesses the meal and feeds this multitude of people. John includes this as the second Passover story. 
In the Gospel of John, the third Passover is the last meal of Christ. It's the last supper, the meal that he shares with his disciples. And I think this is really important to know about the Gospel of John. You see, the Passover is this beautiful meal, this beautiful ceremony in which the participants celebrate God's liberating of God's people out of slavery. Whether it was in Jesus' time, it was this meal at which the Hebrew people celebrated God liberating the Hebrew people out of Egypt when they were in slavery to Pharaoh. They were there for hundreds of years making bricks. And and day after day, they were known not by their name, but by the number of bricks they could make. And God liberated them out of Egypt, and so now they have this Passover meal to commemorate this very thing. But after Jesus, it will no longer be this meal that commemorates just a liberation of Hebrew people out of slavery, but it will be a meal that commemorates God liberating all people from slavery to sin and death. That God chose Jesus Christ to liberate us. It is this meal around which John places the entire gospel. So John not only gives us a win, not only gives us the six days before the Passover, but he also gives us a where. He also tells, that it, tells us that it happens in Bethany. Now this is important as well. You can see Bethany down here uh, next to the Dead Sea. Jesus was just here, as we heard, when he raised Lazarus from the dead. That just a couple of chapters ago, Jesus came here. Uh, when Martha and Mary had called him, he learned that Lazarus, the person whom he loved, had passed. And so he came there and he raised Lazarus from the dead. And then just a few verses later, he leaves with the disciples and they go outside of town to purify themselves before the Passover meal. And now they're coming back to Bethany just before they stop and go back into Jerusalem. This will be the last journey that Jesus makes into Jerusalem. You see, this entire story is a setup. This entire story is setting the stage for what will come in the weeks ahead. This entire story is a setup for Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the holy day that we will celebrate next week. It's the day in which we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. That when Jesus came into Jerusalem, people started shouting and screaming. They started cheering and waving palm branches and laying them before Jesus that he didn't have to walk on the ground. They celebrated Jesus the way they celebrate a king returning to his homeland. This is the day that we celebrate on Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This story is also a setup for Holy Thursday. Holy Thursday is the day that we celebrate the last meal of Christ. That he celebrated in that last Passover meal, which he said this meal is no longer a meal to commemorate the Passover lamb. This meal is not only to commemorate this one thing that was done for one people, but now this act that is given for all people, that all people might have life. This meal is a setup for that, that, that very thing that will happen in Jerusalem. This is also a setup for Good Friday. A Good Friday, something that we will celebrate here two weeks from now. A service in which we remember the death of Christ. The immense sacrifice that Christ made for us, that he gave his very life. And it wasn't just this human life, it was the very life of God. That he gave his only son for our lives. The story is a setup for Good Friday. But it's also a setup for Easter Sunday. The resurrection of Christ, the time that we remember that Christ is risen. He is no longer dead, but is alive. 
This entire story is a setup, and it begins with these words that it was six days before Passover and that it happened in Bethany. And it's in this very place that we read of the outstanding thing that Mary did. We read about it in verse 3. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. Now, now that very sentence alone should just blow our minds that, that Mary took a pound of perfume. Like one pound, most people think that's a liter of perfume and poured it over Jesus' feet. It must have created this, this huge puddle and just a mess around Jesus that she anointed Jesus' feet with it. And when she saw the mess that she had created, she let down her hair, something a woman was never supposed to do in public. She let down her hair and she mopped up the mess with her, with her hair. And she does this entire event in front of all of the disciples, in front of everyone who was present. And then what we read is that the smell of perfume filled the entire house. You ever, you ever go to like those events with maybe some like older women, you know, that are there and, and you just like, you just walk in and you're just going, what is, what is, that's what the entire disciples were doing the entire time, right? They, a pound of perfume had filled the room and now they couldn't smell anything but this, but this and all the people in there begin to get aggravated. And Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, said, why is this perfume sold for 300 denarii? 300 denarii. Most people think that a denarii was one day's wage. One day's wage, that this was almost a year's wage. That this woman has spent and now poured all over this man's feet. He said, why wasn't this sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now, now, John goes on to explain why he would say this, right? Because he kept the common purse and, and he was taking a little bit off the top for himself. But even if that wasn't the case, even if he, if he wasn't taking the money, there's a part of us that kind of agrees with Judas, right? There's just a little bit of us that says, yeah, yeah, you know, you could have done some really good work with a year's wage. You could have fed, you know, a lot of people. You could have done a lot of good work with a year's wage. Why would you do this? Why would you take this thing and, and do this all in front of all of these people? Why would you ruin this entire thing? Well, I think there are a couple reasons why. I think one of the reasons was that she was anointing Jesus as king. She's anointing Jesus as king. You see, throughout the Old Testament, whenever there would be a new king of Israel, what would be common to do is to take oil or perfume and anoint the new king's head with it. That many times a prophet would go about and he, and he would feel called by God to find Israel's new king. And when he would find him, he would anoint that new king with oil. And so perhaps Mary is signifying the fact that Jesus, just before he enters Jerusalem, just before he goes into the Holy Land, is the King of Kings, is the Lord of Lords. That maybe Mary was anointing Jesus as King. Or maybe also she was preparing Jesus for his burial. In this day and age, in the time of Jesus, they didn't have embalming or anything like that. They simply ordained, uh, anointed the bodies with oils and with perfumes after they would pass. That they'd have a little bit longer with the deceased. 
that Mary is signifying the fact that Jesus is soon to pass, that his time is coming. And I not only believe these things are true, I not only believe that Mary was, was anointing Jesus as king and was preparing his body for burial, but I also, also think that beyond both of these things, Mary just radically loved Jesus. That she just had this all-consuming devotion to Christ. And, and because of that love, she was called to do something completely radical, completely different. Because here's what we know about love, that love is not logical. It's just not, right? This love takes a hold of us many times and calls us to choose against self-preservation, right? That, that our bodies are hardwired to preserve ourselves. Our bodies are hardwired to protect us, but what we do is we start to love others and we start to give of ourselves to others, right? I'm a father of two kids. I've cleaned, you know, some weird stuff out of some weird places, and it's not because I like to, it's because I love my children, I love others, and I do that out of that unself-preservation love. That this love called Mary to do this thing, to ruin this entire party, to fill this entire room with this smell of this perfume, all because she loved Christ. And this is the very same love that will call Christ to give of himself, to give of his life. And when it comes to the end of his life, he will go and pray at the Garden of Gethsemane. And he will pray to God the Father, and he will say, Father, if there is any way that this cup can pass from me, that he knows the torture, he knows all the things that will happen to his life, he knows all the things that will happen to his body. He says, Lord, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me. He says, not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. Those words are not said out of logic. Those words are not said out of some well-crafted argument in our head, those words are said purely out of love. So Mary does this act. She, she pours this perfume over Jesus' feet. Judas asks her why she's done this thing, that, that she could have spent this money and given it to the poor. And Jesus, in fact, responds to Judas. He says, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. She says, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, this last sentence has been used to say many different things. And, and we just kind of have to clear the air before we can ever move on. That What Jesus is not saying is that since you always have the poor with you, don't worry about him. Right? That's not Jesus, in fact. What Jesus is saying is that because you are my followers, because you are Christians, because you are little Christs, because you mimic me, you will always be around the poor. What Jesus is doing is actually repeating the very words of Deuteronomy. We read these words in Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. It says, There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites. 
who are poor and needy in your land. These words are not to say, don't do anything about the poor. In fact, it's saying, because they are there, because you are around them, you must help them. So Jesus says, the poor are always with you. The poor are here, you need to help them. But Jesus says, Mary has done something that is good, Judas. Mary has, has done something out of pure love, not out, out of fear, not out of self-preservation. Mary has done something out of pure love. And that is good. In fact, in the next chapter, Jesus will mimic the actions of Mary. That Jesus will come to that Passover meal, and, and when he gets there, he's the last to arrive. And, and what we see is that the disciples have all gotten to the Last Supper. They've all gotten to this last Passover meal, and none of them have washed their feet. See, in the time of Jesus, they, they didn't have tennis shoes. They had sandals. They walked around in the desert. Their, their feet were just really dirty most of the time. And so anytime they would go inside, there would be a water basin at the door many times with a servant next to the basin to wash the people's feet. And maybe, just maybe, the disciples arrived one by one. And maybe as they arrived and as they walked into the room, they saw the water basin, they saw the towel, but no servant. And maybe they stood there for a bit and thought. Right, what are they supposed to do now? This is a faux pas. This, this looks bad on everybody who's arrived. There's no servant here to wash our feet. And so each disciple, one by one, instead of choosing to wash their own feet, instead of choosing to turn around and wash the feet of the disciples behind them, they go and they sit at the table. And Jesus arrives and he looks around at the disciples and he sees that None of them have washed their feet. That not only have they not washed their own feet, but they didn't turn around and wash the feet of their fellow disciples, of their fellow friends. And I wonder if in that moment, Jesus just felt this utter disappointment wash over him. For three years, he's been with these people. For three years, he's taught them. He's given them his very life to teach these people about this love, this self-sacrificial love, not this self-preservation, but this all-giving love to these disciples. And here they are at the last meal that he will ever share with them, and they still don't get it. And so Jesus takes off his outer cloak and he wraps a towel around his waist and he grabs the water basin and he goes and he walks to the first disciple. And their rabbi, their teacher, the Messiah begins to wash their feet. And one by one he makes it all the way around to the disciples and he comes to Peter, the rock upon which Christ will build the church. And Peter stands up and says, don't wash my feet, I, I, I should be washing your feet. And Jesus says, no, I have to do this. And, and he says, well, if you have to do it, then wash all of me. And he goes, no, you still don't get it. So Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And then finally he's done and he goes and he puts the basin back and he unwraps the towel, puts on his outer cloak and he goes and he sits down. And he begins to teach the disciples about what he's just done. He says these words in John 13. 
Do you know what I have done to you? He says. You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, and the messengers are greater, not, nor the messenger is greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Jesus takes this act, and like m- many things, he turns it up on its head. Instead of having a servant present to wash the disciples' feet, Jesus himself, the master, the Messiah, the one who will die for the entire world, washes the feet of the disciples, and then he turns around and he says, you go and live your lives in this very same manner. Four years ago, on another Holy Thursday, again, a day that commemorates the last meal of Jesus Christ, it's customary for the Pope of the Catholic Church to celebrate a Mass at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. If you've seen it, it's an amazing sanctuary of God. And on four years ago, on this date, instead of Pope Francis sharing in this Holy Thursday in the Roman Basilica, he chooses to share in Holy Thursday at a juvenile detention center. And at this ceremony, it's customary for the Pope to wash 12 of the participants' feet to represent the 12 disciples and in the exact act that Jesus did. And again, most of this time is spent at the Roman Basilica, so there are priests and cardinals and bishops present, high-ranking officials that the Pope will wash their feet. But here Jesus is at a juvenile detention center, and so he chooses 12 of the juvenile delinquents to wash their feet. And so the participants watch as Pope Francis, this man who is one of the most powerful men in the world, who kneels down on both knees and washes these children's feet, twelve of them, some of whom are Catholic, some of whom are Protestant. some of whom are atheists, and two of whom are Muslim. And despite theological beliefs, despite whether or not they agree with the very fact that he's there in the first place, despite whether or not they believe in Jesus Christ, despite whether they even believe in God. Here the head of the Catholic Church is washing their feet, serving them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what if we lived our lives with this kind of humility? How would the world change if we lived our lives as a servant? What would our relationships look like with our friends, our coworkers, if, if instead of trying to enforce this help upon them, in, in, instead of, of, of trying to, to 
forced this thing upon them that I might be able to help. I have this knowledge that I need to give you. What if instead we served? What would our marriages look like? What would our marriages look like instead of trying just to fix it? Instead of just trying to make it better, I, I know this thing, this is what we're supposed to do. What if instead we served our partner, our spouse? And what would our political system look like if we who called ourselves followers of Christ, instead of trying to change everyone's mind, Instead of trying to have arguments with each and every person we see, trying to make their mind, their thinking, their logic like mine, what if instead we chose to serve each other? Because I think this has the power to change the world, friends. Because I believe there is someone in each of our lives that we are called to serve. Maybe if just for a little bit, there is someone in our minds, in our lives, in our hearts right now that we are called to serve. Maybe it's your spouse. Or maybe it's a friend or a coworker. Or, you know, maybe it's somebody you may not like. I want you to think and imagine that person right now. I want you to write their name down. I'll invite you to do something for that person. Something that they could not do by themselves. Because I believe, friends, that we have the power to change the world. If we would choose not to act out of fear, not to act out of self-preservation, but to act out of love and serve one another.